Welcome back to our podcast series on leadership. In this series, we're talking with Australian business and community leaders to learn more about them and try to understand what makes them effective in their roles. What do they see as the most important attributes of a good leader? What are the toughest challenges they've had to face? How did they deal with them? And what did they draw from in the process? My name's Steve Mabs, and I'm the CEO of business and digital consultancy, Essient. My company's been fortunate enough to have worked with leaders in over 100 organizations across many industry sectors. We've seen them in action, leading their organizations through transformational change and other major challenges. With the huge impact that coronavirus is having, we felt it was timely to gain some insight into how leaders are effectively dealing with this crisis, as well as other challenges facing their organizations. Today, our Managing Director in Victoria, Rebecca Campbell-Burns, talks with Dale Fisher, the CEO of the Silver Chain Group, one of Australia's leading non-profit providers of health and aged care services in the community. Over to you, Beck. Thanks, Steve. Welcome, Dale, and thank you for agreeing to be part of this podcast. Can I start by asking you about Silver Chain? Could you tell us a little bit about its mission and the impact it's having as an organisation in our community? Thanks very much, Rebecca. Um, It's great to be able to talk to you today. And it's a great pleasure also to be able to talk about Silver Chain Group, an amazing organisation that's been around uh, longer than Qantas, over 100 years, uh, 110 in WA and 120 in South Australia. And so our vision is to provide the world's best health and aged care in the home so that Australians can confidently live the lives that they choose. That's based on a belief that we believe Australians should be able to control and manage their own health and well-being, and the best place to do that is in the home. We provide a comprehensive range of health and wellbeing support, and implicit in our vision is that we put the client that we call, even with a, if they are a patient, the client at the centre of everything we do. And we've uh, built up um, an incredible amount of know-how um, over that century of care. And that our name, Silver Chain, the unbroken chain of care over many years, is really one of our greatest strengths, that how we've built our knowledge, shared our knowledge uh, with Australia and um, built our expertise. So uh, it's a great privilege to be able to lead such an iconic organisation in Australia. That's an incredible amount of time to have a single organisation in operation. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the culture, if, if, if how it's evolved over those years? I know, obviously, you haven't been there for <laughs> anywhere near that time, but um, but in terms of uh, such a long history, can you tell us a little bit about the culture? Silver Chain's culture uh, has evolved over many years. The most interesting aspect of the culture is its pioneering spirit. And I think that that comes from its heritage, you know, the long-term heritage that it has enjoyed. We undertook an exercise when I first started as the CEO where we mapped the history of Silver Chain against the history of Australia. And we were happened to be in Victoria for this meeting and we also mapped the history of Victoria. And I'm pleased to say that we identified that at each point in time um, of an innovation, that Silver Chain was a leader in adopting 
new practices uh, and including technology. So, for example, we uh, were the first to introduce uh, cars where nurses would drive to uh, the client's home and that was an evolution from the bicycle. So we were early adopters and I think that pioneering spirit still is shown in our culture today, the way we do things. Also, the culture represents our values, which is care, which is what we do, and the community. We, we understand and are connected with community values as well. It's really important for an organisation to be in tune with the community's values. And I think that that's why it has survived for so long. The community trusts and respects us and we trust them in turn. And I think, again, that's the key to its longevity. The integrity is there. We really act and behave. Um, We're consistent with what we say. And again, that builds trust within the community. And we have always trusted uh, the quality of our care. It's actually, uh, we strive for excellence, but we always know we can do better. And so those values with our pioneering spirit and our innovative Um, eye on the future horizon does bring together the most amazing culture Um, and I've had the privilege to lead a couple of uh, iconic institutions that has had over 100 years of of, uh, service uh, delivery and it really is there's consistencies actually between the organisations I've led and that's why I love um, leading you know heritage organisations. On the same topic, I guess, uh, Dale, how does, how does an organisation stay competitive and differentiate in, in a market uh, for such a long period of time? I think that one of the competitive advantage, not in a business term, but again, I go back to the community, it's actually uh, really stands up for the community and its values. So we do have a competitive advantage in the market and historically about being early adopters. So, for example, Silver Chain uh, was one of the first community providers to introduce computers, and that was in the early 80s, and that was seen as quite radical. Of course, now we would think, of course, but it was a real cultural shift for the organisation internally, and it was an early uh, adopter of technology that really modernised the organisation uh, in advance of other community care providers. And so, again, that's always been a competitive advantage. And, again, when we're looking at our future, we also uh, draw on that, again, that history of early a- adoption of new practice uh, and uh, technology that really um, sets us apart from others. We also, um, not only in technology, but have adopted very high standards in our quality of care. So we subjected the organisation to, I don't mean subjected in a negative sense, but uh, set ourselves standards that were equal to a hospital standard. So you get accredited through Australian healthcare standards. And so Silver Chain set the bench or the the benchmark really high for themselves and we are accredited like any hospital. So again, demonstrating the high standard in which we require ourselves, which then translates to good care for our clients. Wow, fantastic. It sounds like that organisational performance and um, the alignment between the clarity of purpose and values and mission is all is all really well lined up there. 
Um, what do you see the biggest challenges going forward for, for Silver Chain and in general the, the sector? I mean, obviously there's been a, a lot in the aged care sector um, most recently, but, um, yeah, what do you think the, the biggest challenges will be for you in your organisation? Well, I think that the recent or current pandemic experience uh, has really uh, shown us what how how fragile the health system uh, can be, and that's anywhere in the world. Australia has done um, a amazing job flattening the curve, as as we said, and the reason to do that is then to make sure that the health system could cope with the um, uh, high acuity potential of of patients who are affected by the COVID. So the challenge for us probably prior to COVID was to influence the government policy to move care out of hospitals. There's a lot of hospitals that hold on to patients that don't really need to be there. And so one of the challenges and one of the reasons I took this job was that I do really believe that care should be shifted to the community. And so the challenge pre-COVID was uh, influencing the funders. Um, The community already telling us we'd run a stay home. Um, And if that means um, whether I want to live well at home as I'm ageing or whether I I want to die at home or I'm being treated for cancer and I want my chemotherapy in the home. So the community is speaking loud and clear uh, about what they want, but there is a lag uh, on the policy position uh, and, of course, then the funding. So the reform has been very slow. So the challenge now for the system, I think, is to take advantage of uh, the COVID experience and things like the rapid um, take-up of telehealth, you know, that we were able to, you know, everyone was able to demonstrate, well, clients actually like, you know, the telehealth, um, the general practitioners liked it, it is effective. And so it's not a revolution. The technology has been around, but the, the, there was barriers to utilising the technology that's available today. So I think that the, the challenge for all of us, not just Silver Chain, is to embrace these changes and move more care into the home and it can be done safely. Yeah, fantastic. And I think that, um, you know, we've seen in industries all across every industry those barriers to um, technology adoption or changing the way things are done are really coming down very, very quickly. Um, In terms of you and your style, Dale, how would your team describe your leadership style in particular? I would like them to describe (laughs) me how... I believe I am and I. this is, you know, my third chief executive uh, role and I believe that even in my first role as what I call a novice chief executive, which when I didn't know what I was doing, I'm sorry there to the old team of the women's hospital, but all I was able to do is, you know, respond. I, I actually couldn't see round corners like I can do now. But when I've reflected about my leadership over the time and probably, you know, been as successful, you can't see me um, with my two fingers in the air, successful um, uh, leader is because of the elements um, of who I am as a person. And so I think I bring me to the role and I've had the benefit of having a happy upbringing, you know, the cliche, uh, good parenting, great community support. So I'm the everyday person. And 
people, I think my followers can see that. So I'm accessible. You know, I'm not someone that uh, doesn't, you know, it doesn't fit. And particularly I started as a nurse. So for Silver Chain, it makes sense that you've got a nurse in the top job. I've always been able to make decisions decisively. Um, I think culture, that was something with Silver Chain was a little bit surprised at, um, but it's really important that you make decisions. And if you don't make a decision, you know, you're actually going backwards. And I've always been able to adapt to the environment and I can identify with the frontline uh, workers. And so I'm consciously reminding myself about what it's like for the front line. And whether it's at the women's, at Peter Mac or at Silver Chain, I make decisions for the organisations, thinking about the interests of the people that work, who are delivering that care and also the clients. So I think that that's a winning formula. Too many leaders I see, you know, sit in the office and don't really live and breathe the business. So empathy for clients and staff will be one of my strengths. Excellent. I mean, you um, you, you, you touch on a, uh, an element there that I was interested in asking you about, Dale, which is um, with, with iconic places like Peter Mac and the Royal Women's Hospital, there, there's a great sense of place. I mean, you, you've got physical buildings that you can, you can walk through, and as a leader I, I'm assuming it was... Um, relatively, and I say relatively, straightforward to to really feel in touch with the front line. Um, with Silver Chain and the way it, it works as an organisation, the dispersed nature, the fact that a lot of the services are delivered in the home, how did you find that transition in terms of um, the sense of, of place and was that an important factor in for you to kind of transition to your new role at Silver Chain? It's been really challenging, Rebecca, to be perfectly honest, Again, one of my strengths is presence. And so when I would go to the hospital, which I was leading, everyone was in the one place, including our clients Mm. and patients. And so, again, you know, management by walking around, talking to staff, you know, what was easy, we would have an open forum and then, you know, staff would come and they'd engage, you know, with me and I would learn more. And so with the national organisation with the teams and the services distributed in, in WA, you know, we provide care in uh, remote uh, area uh, nursing posts as well. So it is very challenging. One of the benefits of uh, COVID is that we have used the technology available to us to, to connect with each other more readily and so I think post-COVID, the use of technology will for meetings and we even found a function for town hall type uh, sessions, which we're going to explore uh, in the future, because it's really, again, important to connect with the front line. And again, during COVID, that was the, my number one. How do we communicate directly um, to the front line, particularly because the courageous nurses are on the front line um, putting themselves at risk? So I'm pleased to say that we focused on who the audience was, which is that that was the that was the the nurse in the front line or the carer. And our results that have just come in, we're quite pleased with that over 90% felt that they were getting the right information and felt safe in, in their practice because of the communication. So I think we've cracked it in a way we would never have done unless we were under such pressure and the challenge will be continuing. So 
The other thing is we have been interacting together more regularly for shorter periods. So that's an interesting dynamic that I think would probably be used to get greater national engagement. So so more iterative, regular interactions rather than the more formal engagement that we were actually structured in into our leadership management and community and staff engagement. And is that because previously you would fly people around and bring them all together for, you know, for more formalised meeting dates and times and now you've got more opportunity to just do that when, when you need to and do that virtually? Is that is that part of that? Yes. I mean, it's important that, that there's the social element, you know, that in when you do bring people physically together, it is a different dynamic. So I'm certainly not suggesting it will always be virtual. No. But we would be more strategic about those um, when we, you know, flew everyone in together that it, it is about maybe just having some space to share stories and including personal stories. So I wouldn't like us to see see us lose that a social connection because, again, you know, social isolation is not only for clients in their home, it's for staff, particularly our staff who are actually, you know, practising as lone practitioners going into environments that are unfamiliar to themselves and so going back to the base talking to the peers about their day is a really important element in community nursing that must be continued. Um, Are you okay if we shift gears a little bit now Dale and perhaps talk about some of your uh, early background uh, growing up childhood and early career? Yeah sure. Yeah, could you tell me a little? You, you touched on it before. You said you had a happy childhood and you were you were fortunate in a lot of ways. Can you tell us a little bit about um, about Dale as a as a child and um, some of the influences and role models that have um, had an impact on you? Yeah, thanks, Rebecca. Yeah, well, I'm a country girl, and um, you, you know, sometimes from a, a place in northeastern Victoria called Wangaratta, and the twang will come in now and and again. But so. Uh, when I went did nursing, the two options for girls then were nursing or teaching. So my sister became a teacher and I became the nurse. So we were sort of stereotypical of that. But as a country person, we're actually, um, we didn't run a farm, but my grandparents ran the farm. And so I grew up without boundaries. And so I had a country life without actually having the heartache of being on the land so um, I think that that's an interesting influence on my life and I was very close, lived next to, you know, a paddock away from my grandmother. My grandmother was a pioneering woman and had she been born in a different era, she would have perhaps been an academic and she educated herself through the church and she was one of the first women uh, to drive a car in the district. And so I was very close to my grandmother. In fact, I named my daughter after her and she was a very uh, strong feminist who had a huge impact on my life and I think that that's why I've stayed in not-for-profit um, mm-hmm. that the you know the, the caring um, profession yes but really it's about my career has been about impact you know every every day what am I doing whether that was at a, at, as in nursing directly to a, a patient when I ran a ward, you know, what, what's the impact? What, what can, how can I make this better? Um, and then, and, and it goes on. And so I think I looked to my grandmother who really had a huge um, influence uh, on my life and my career, who gave me great confidence in who I 
not only who I was as a young person, but who I who I might be. And uh, yeah, so absolutely, that's had a huge um, influence on me. And you know, I, I talk to my girls. You know that I've had two girls, and um, who are being brought up in the city. So. <laughs> You know, I often think about how they are bounded by, you know, the suburban fence and and really try and encourage them to think outside of how others might see them, uh, but how they could envisage themselves in in a different form. So the proof will be in the pudding. But yet I'm fortunate, you know, I don't come from a privileged background, but I didn't have any um, adversity or, or, or suffering that many of the communities that the three iconic institutions that I've led looks after. Yeah, absolutely. And in your um, in your career, Dale, your early days from being the nurse into transition, what was that transition path look like into into management, senior management, and then leading organisations like you have? How, what was that? What did that path look like? Was it a straight line, or did you did you meander your way through? Did you always know you wanted to? lead an organisation like that? Was that always an aim for you? Well, some of my friends and family would say I was very ambitious as as a child. I don't believe that is true. But like when there's a bit of a funny story that if you don't mind me sharing with you, when I, I, um, you know, left the bush to come to the big smoke, um, it was very exciting. I started nursing and in the hospital system but the hospital is, hospitals are were developed in the military, very hierarchical, and the the role of nursing vis-a-vis the power of the medical staff, and you're at the bottom rung as a student nurse, I couldn't believe the lack of respect that we were treated with. So to cut a long story short, I got kicked out of nursing in my first year because I was a troublemaker. <laughs> and... And, um, and I think that, you know, so, so what, what do you do then, you know, um, girl from the bush, unemployed, didn't get to train and it was a very scary time but I now know that I was balking against the sort of, you know, hierarchical structure and lack of power and I'd been brought up, you know, to speak my mind and, you know, be a strong, independent woman. And there I was treated like, you know, I was an imbecile with all of these rules that I tried to change, <laughs> which wasn't appreciated back then, I can assure you. Clearly they got rid of me. But anyway, the, the good news about that is it would be, trying to work out how many years, 20 years later, where I was kicked out of, I built the new women's hospital um, in Victoria on the nursing home sites as a CEO. So in 20 years from being kicked out (laughs) and jobless, I was able to build my way to a career. So I went back to nursing training after that and went to um, Western General, where it was a different Again, looking after a vulnerable community, but it was the nurses that were married from overseas or enrolled nurses, and so they were they were more like gypsies. So I sort of found my people, <laughs> and then again, naturally, I was probably you know our leaders bored or made. I think it's a bit of both. I've probably got a always been a leader, you know, through student activism. And then, and that's what I was trying to do, I think, in that first year of nursing, change the system. But, of course, it was very hard. I had no power. 
Hmm. So maybe I'm driven by the power. I don't think so. Hopefully I'm driven by the impact. But I knew I needed, uh, when I uh, ran a ward, which didn't get paid for, people wanted to work with me. And I think that that was because I was trying to make the environment better for the patient and the staff. And so that's been a simple formula all the way, but I knew I needed some theory behind that. So then I did um, study for a bachelor of business. That took me forever, part-time and working. Then I did a master's of business. And I always uh, got um, intrigued by change management, which now I call change leadership. And so I went and worked in organisations that were going under significant change And then, you know, using a new capital build was a great tool to change the way we worked, even though it was a physical building. So even I went to work at Prince Henry's, which many may not remember, a hospital in St Kilda Road that was closed down. And I went there because it was closing down. And I wanted to know what, what, you know, how to do that, what it was like, and then went out to Monash Medical Centre. So I've sort of followed only in Victoria organisations that have undergone um, significant change and, of course, you know, built the new women's and then the the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre, which is the most magnificent physical building, but it's not, again, the building, it's what goes on uh, inside. So, you know, I've worked hard on the theory and, and hard on the practice and I didn't have, didn't go to university. So I think, you know, going to uni was getting that chip off my shoulder as well to show I wasn't smart, um, but also to show to my, show myself. And learning is such an important part of leadership practice. And, um, and so I've really enjoyed uh, challenging myself in many ways. And again, you know, I'd loved the women's hospital. Uh, I was there as CEO for just under 10 years and I was asked to lead Peter Mac and didn't really want to leave the women's. But again, you know, what I do is really, well, what is the next, what is the next, what is the next impact I can have? And I'm very passionate about population health group. And so how do we make care better for women in this particular uh, case? How do we make it better for people affected by cancer? And at Peter Mac, there was no way I could have done anything in the science sense. And my role was facilitation and then also improving the model of care. So it wasn't just about the disease. Cancer impacts the family. And so um, introducing a wellbeing program within the cancer centre was one of my greatest delights. And also organisation is socially progressive organisation. And my view is that if you're an organisation of discovery, you also have to be socially progressive. And so there's some examples that I can share about that. And so when what's my next challenge? So as my years, you know, diminish in front of me, <laughs> I think it's like dog years. I've only got I've got to pack seven years into one year. <laughs> and so ta- taking taking Silver Chain, um, I did know the previous CEO of Silver Chain, and I think that I was quite intrigued about what Silver Chain was aiming to do. And so when the opportunity came up to lead, you know, this great organisation, I thought, well, what a challenge and what is the most vulnerable population group in our community that needs looking after in a different way and that's our ageing community. And so, again, yes, I've had amazing jobs, but really to be able to serve or, you know, build an organisation, lead it for a period of time and then pass it on to the next leader, stronger, more vibrant, to do more great work. And, and I think, 
there is a view that, you know, health services should be all integrated. There shouldn't be specialty um, hospitals, but that is not my view. I'm against the policy, but but I really believe, you know, in order to get equity, you've got to treat groups unequally to get that equity. And so, again, I go back to children, women, people affected by cancer and, and now older Australians. You must have seen some amazing things um, in that history of those vulnerable cohorts and looking after them in lots of various roles. Dale, can you, can you share with us the, the best of humanity that you've story that you've um that you've stuck with you or your favorite one it's not a story of a, a client um but it, it is a story i'll we'll probably draw on the women's hospital where they, they originally the build was going to be a standalone and the view at the time was that should be become what I used to call the pink wing of the Royal Melbourne Hospital mm-hmm. and we called the Royal Melbourne Big Brother and uh, the children's little brother, <laughs> where the women's was trying to fight for its independence. And in, and women's, in women's health, it's not about having um, babies. It's actually comprehensive women's health. And having a broader perspective, we, we set up the first centre for women's mental health, a universal approach at the women's where as part of, so most women's, Mental health was about postpartum depression, but women um, suffer from anxiety and depression more than men. So it was a really amazing centre and some programs there where the young women, young young girls having babies and the women's history in taking babies, you know, away from their mothers. And so we did some great work there. But the story I'd like to share with you the Royal Women's Hospital at this old site at Carlton had a role in taking Indigenous babies from Indigenous mothers and that the Indigenous community did not trust the women's. And with the opportunity of a new hospital, it was really important, I thought, that we had a fresh start. And that's all right for us to say, but how do we demonstrate to um, the Aboriginal community that we are genuine in that and at the time, fortunate for us that Rudd had done the national apology and so um, I'm going to get upset now. Um, we we um, called um, uh, our own, invited all the um, Indigenous elders um, and uh, emerging um, le- Indigenous leaders and we apologised to them for our role in that. And um, oh. you can see it still upsets me. Um, but the, the beauty of that... That's one of the most privileged things that I've been able to do in my career. And um, and I also that know that they um, the community did um, believe it was genuine and um, we were able to, you know, walk with them and improve the services in the new facility and outreach because we had gained some trust. Oh, wow. That's an amazing story, Dale. That truly is incredible because I think there's so many people will have have lived through that apology period and understood the the trauma and the the devastation that it brought, um, the practice brought to so many people and to have played a part like that, that's um, no wonder it still still has an impact on you. 
And it had an impact on the whole organisation too. And so we were able to move not more swiftly, but more genuinely into, you know, reconciliation starts with me. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the understanding, again, of the hurt and suffering, you know, the the women's, you know, staff really, really understood. And, And I think we were different. We were different after that day. Look, you have um, absolutely on a number of occasions touched on a, on a few topics that are certainly dear to my heart around diversity and inclusion, not just gender but, um, but, but ethnicity and um, ability and disability and a whole lot of and age, obviously, as um, key vulnerable parts of our community. Do you, I mean, I firmly believe that you can't be what you can't see. So we need many, many more um, leaders who can show diversity and uh, the value of that across our organisations. Can you share with us your views around, um, as, a, as a strong independent woman, but your views around diversity and what you think we need to do um, across the board in organisations to uh, be better at this? Yes, well, I'm glad you highlighted gender and diversity because I know even the AICD include um, gender as a diversity, and I don't believe that. I know the why I don't believe that is it the strategies to achieve equity are different, and so having you know gender equity, we that's really important, and you would know better than me, Rebecca, the, the metrics of what that actually means on boards, for example, and at leadership, you know, the performance improves. And there does need to be, I'm actually pro-quotas because things haven't changed, you know, uh, to date uh, without them, so why not have a target? And the risk of, not, of putting gender into diversity is that the likely scenario at the, in, the, in the boardrooms will be that women will be the diverse group on the boards and will still be full of, you know, white men, the other half. So, mm. so um, it is, it's not just symbolism about women. It's actually, you know, makes sense to have the equity and also to represent the community you serve um, in terms of other forms forms of diversity. And I think, again, that staff, our staff needs to reflect at the diverse community in which we serve. And that doesn't still doesn't happen that well in, in Australia, in our health system. And I think we can do more to do more of that. And there are some... Um, one of again, one of my achievements that I'm proud of that goes back away a when I was general manager of Dandenong Hospital. Now that community is very diverse out there, mm-hmm. but I can assure you, most of the staff were white, and that was quite. Uh, that was you know I could physically see that, and even though that was early on um, in my career, and I didn't quite understand, but I knew it wasn't quite right. And so one of the things that I was able to do there was introduce. A, the first in Australia, there's actually a radio program on it, on a multi-faith centre in the hospital. Uh-huh. And so I was able to raise money and build the first multi-faith centre that didn't have the cross, you know, usually every other project, the Christian religion would dominate. But through really good consultation, we're able to, the most beautiful physical space where my first daughter was blessed and it had light and water and all those universal symbols spiritual symbols and the we had beautiful artwork and the view was old you know it'll people will come and trash it and you know and it absolutely did not happen 
But what it did to the staff was educate them about the diverse community that they were serving. And if, you know, the Christian type chapel just reinforced their own sort of values and beliefs. And so by transforming the spiritual, physical place at the Dandenong Hospital really was such a powerful symbol and message to the staff about the community they were serving. That demonstrates, I think, how strongly I feel and and how um, diversity and inclusion can improve, um, you know, the care that we provide for the community we serve. Um, How have you seen the attitudes change over the years towards towards all aspects of diversity and including, including gender? Have you seen... Are you positive about um, the change you've seen? Do you not? Do you think that it could have gone faster? Do you wish for different changes? Look, it's definitely. I think it's it, it's definitely improved. There is no doubt about that. And I now see early in my career how there was bias and prejudice against me, but I didn't feel it. Uh-huh. And again, I think that that's because you know I was you know, born of strong character perhaps. So uh, but when I saw it with others, that's what disturbed me. You know, I could sort of, so it's an interesting, it's certainly not happening fast enough. And um, and I think, uh, you know, as leaders, we all have a role to, you know, shift the, the bias and perceptions and, you know, it, it does need to much be much better. And look, Silver Chain has got uh, a way to go on this. And that will be a very important part of our, how we see ourselves in the future. Um, the community we serve uh, and reflecting out the staff that we serve. We do look after remote communities, Indigenous communities. But even in our metro programs, I think we've got, we've got a long way to go and I've got a responsibility as a leader to improve that. But I have, I have seen yeah, improvements, there's no doubt. Excellent. That's promising, very promising. <laughs> um, Dale, in term, you've had such big roles. Um, I'm really interested in, um, in how, how you balance that out. What, what do you do to unwind and recharge in, in your spare time and, and how, do you, how do you continue to, to do such, such big roles in your career? Well, you know, being the everyday person, you know, I'm not really a sport, I'm not a, in fact, I'm pretty anti-sports. I'll tell you why, because I think that the value it has in Australian culture is too high relative to the other, you know, issues we need to be dealing with. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not, I'm not really a sports fan, even though I love the beach. So I really, since I was very, very, very career focused and then when I had uh, children late, I really, it's family life that is really brings me the balance. And again, you know, how, how fortunate I have to have, you know, two, two beautiful daughters and um, sharing their lives is a major balancing act and including one of their favourite sayings now is, well, you know, don't think you're the CEO here, Mum. <laughs> so um, it's a great leveller. Uh, I love, you know, my friends and my family and I love to relax doing nothing, quite frankly. I've always been able to uh, uh, switch off. I think that's the key. And as I said, I'm an everyday person. When I take my heels off, have it still on my heels and um, into my high heel sneakers and um, just um, I-, I love to read. I'm in a book club, so that's mm-hmm. quite nice. 
um, read and think. And that's pretty much it, Rebecca. Quite boring, really, when I say it out loud. No, I think, I think well, I, there's not many people who can say that they're good at being able to switch off, Dale, so I think um, that might be the, um, the, the, a, a very key talent that you've got there to be able to do that. So, um, so I think that, that's awesome. Um, if you had your time to do some of the things differently, what would, would you do anything differently in your life so far or are you happy with the, with the way it's progressed and how? Yeah, I've been so fortunate and some of the experiences that I've had are just, um, when I think about it, it's just, you know, perhaps I might write the book. I might need to spice it up a little bit, Rebecca. But oh, I think you've got plenty there to spice it up. I don't know that you'd need to do much spicing. You know, I've met the most amazing people in my career and, I, you know, including I met, I've met the Queen, I've kissed Obama's um, surfboard, there's a story there. I've been on Prime Minister's tour around. Last year I went to Israel through my work. I don't think I could um, embrace the opportunities more than I have. <laughs> so I really just, just I'm sort of hungry, you know, for that experience and, you know, I love people so much and, and then I, I think probably what I would say to, what I was disappointed during my career was the lack of women who could have helped me along the way. Right. And so I'm very conscious now about, you know, caring for women um, and bringing them along in a way that perhaps I had to fight a little bit for myself. Um, so I, I actually um, am part of a, an amazing initiative called Mentor Walks and where I'm a mentor and uh, once a month you walk around the botanical. We had a virtual walk last month. <laughs> Um, because we couldn't um, gather, whereas a group of young women, you'd walk with them, get your walk in, and then they'd talk about their problems. And so just, you know, little things like that's a great initiative. I've just been invited and joined Chief Executive Women Australia, which is also about mentoring uh, women in their careers. And probably I, I, if I'd said to myself, I, I should have perhaps looked for more. And I, when I speak to groups as well, I always say, you know, look at who are your mentors. And I spoke to a group of young women lawyers and suggested to them if they looked at their mentors, that many of them would be men because they're mostly in the senior places. And there was an audible, you know, intake of breath when, um, so I encourage people to think about their mentors and women who haven't had a women mentor should find one. I think you should have a mix over time. But there's a bias to women going to male mentors. And for myself, I um, when I discovered that about myself, that I had mostly male mentors in my career doing very well. But when I had a female mentor, I really popped in my confidence because I realised I was playing a different role, actually acting a role, which I was socialised to do with males. And so when I had a female mentor, I felt more comfortable with myself and became myself and so I learned more about myself and so I really encourage young women to think about who their mentors are and and that's been you know what I think one of the most successful things for me again to be myself and then I discovered that probably too late even though on paper you would see it's very successful with um you know some of the honors that I've been awarded but that that would be what I I would say to myself you know break out of your own stereotype earlier 
Fantastic advice, Dale. I really, um, I really think that res- will resonate with uh, with a whole lot of um, of women, both uh, at, at all stages of their career. And in fact, I don't think it's limited to women. I think having a, a variety of mentors and sponsors throughout your career is is um, is absolutely critical. So, so thank you for your insight on that. Um, is there anything else that you would like to share with us at the moment in terms of? Um, in terms of what's important to you, what you see the next phase um, of your life being and what you'd like your, perhaps looking back, what your legacy would be? I feel I feel that I have achieved uh, what I set out to do, uh, which is to build these organisations um, more, more strongly than when I found them. Uh, not that they were broken, but, you know, strengthening who they are in order to do more work uh, in the future. So I doubt that there's another chief executive role in me. It's been 18 months with Silverchain, so I've got uh, many more years uh, left at Silverchain to continue the great work that it's doing and to do more. I'm not sure I'll transition to boards to become um, uh, directors on boards. Mainly, I think... CEOs probably find it a bit hard to keep hands off, so I'm aware of that sort of trap. But I feel like I've got a lot to offer in terms of advice to others who are either struggling or need some coaching and guidance. And I think I've got so much experience now that I would love to share it, you know, including the mistakes, you know, one of the things, you know, remember who you are, where you came from, but treat failure as your friend for when I got kicked out of nursing and, and I have failed, but I was able to learn from that failure. But holding someone's hand when they're going through a crisis or needing some guidance, I think that that would be uh, perhaps a future gift. Um, I, I was talking about mentoring women, but I deliberately, um, I was actually matched <laughs> with a, um, you know, Victorian a health service uh, mentoring um, system and so I was buddied up and I wanted a male and we were matched according to interests, et cetera. And that was really good for me because, again, you know, the old saying, you learn more. And the, the ability to, you know, assist others, I've really, really enjoyed. So I can see myself maybe uh, helping in, in all sorts of ways to improve. Look, the, the health system, health is what I've, I've been trained for, I'm passionate for. When I did my master's, I did think of jumping ship. I do like fashion and maybe I could, um, you know, do something differently. But again, having a business qualification and clinical qualification was a differentiation back then. So I stayed in health and I'm glad I did. So I think I would love to utilise the experience I have to build a better system for Australia. Well, Dale, look, I um I can't thank you enough for today. I really um you know we love the work we're doing with Silver Chain, and we um but it's very rare that we get to um to sit down and spend some time just talking to leaders about them and their views and and taking some time out in your day, which I know is incredibly busy. Um, I really I can't thank you enough. Thanks, Rebecca. Thanks for listening. No, it's been fabulous, really. Honestly, Dale, you'll have to tell me um, whether it's now and included in the podcast. I can't wait to hear a little bit about that, Obama. Um. Oh, yeah. But I've also got, uh, so Rebecca, you've got, I've got the best picture of Joe Biden. 
Really? With me, with Joe Biden. And, of course, if he becomes president, don't think I'm not going to use that. Um, it is absolute gold. Uh, he opened the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre. So there's a, there's a story there too I'll share with you offline. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Dale. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Rebecca and Dale, for a great interview. And congratulations, Dale, on your success. We wish you and Silver Chain all the very best for the future. Please join us again next time when we further explore dimensions of leadership through the experience of another of Australia's top organisational leaders. Bye for now.